helmets with their ears sticking out, wax the guy's ear off. And so Jesus, picked, you know, it probably fell, you know how like jelly bread falls jelly side down, you know, it probably fell like bloody side down. And Jesus just picked it up, blew on it, disinfected it, put it on the guy's head and said, we're not doing that. Well, that was an excerpt from talk number three from Tom Job. Enjoy this message as Tom dives into the life of Peter and how that applies to us. That is crazy. Hi, everyone. So, um, so my wife and I went, we took uh, three kids, we had one there. We didn't mean to, but we moved to Italy in 1985. <laughs> wow, that was a surprise. But So we, li- we raised our kids there. And uh, so the first thing that you have to do when you move to a country like that is you have to learn like their crazy language that they speak so and we didn't know any of it so we um like we lived I had like a book you know that had phrases in it so that's the stupidest idea that was like ever invented like phrase books because like I would go into like to to like the butcher shop or something and I would look it up and it would say I would like a pound of meat like I would like a pound of meat Io vorrei un kilo di carne. Io vorrei un kilo di carne. You know, and so I would practice it walking down the street, and then I would go into the store, and the guy would look at me, and I would go, Io vorrei un kilo di carne. And he would go, Ma porca miseria, ma come si fa? Ma come siete voi che venite andate in giro del mondo? Non sapete niente, fate queste domande, ma come si fa? Come si fa a vivere come, come voi? Porca miseria, ma come si fa? And I thought, wow, I was really like not counting on that. Like you were like, I didn't know you were going to answer me back. But we had a, a friend who was, um, he had been there maybe like uh, eight months or something and studying the Italian language. And so he decided he was going to go into a church. I mean, it, the church he was going to, he, they asked him and he said he would try to like tell his kind of, you know, which, like his spiritual journey, like his story about how he met God and, and came to know Jesus and everything. So he wrote it out like on a piece of paper and he memorized it. And he was trying to say, my past is divided into two parts, like before I knew Jesus and after that. And when he got to that part, um, he forgot the word past, which is the word passato. And the only word he could think of was the word dietro, which means my behind. So that, that's what he actually did say. Well, like, you know, my behind is divided into two parts. And they were like, wow, that's not that amazing. <laughs> like, if it wasn't, that would be amazing. But, you know, but, you know, it's just one of those things where, like, I wish I had a makeover. You know, I wish I had, had a do-over on that because that was really stupid. The, the, one of the couples that we worked with, so what you do is, like, you go to a language school all day, and then in the night, evening, you try to practice it and torture your neighbors, you know, and practice your Italian on them. And so Joan was talking to her neighbor, and uh, she said, my husband, Sam, in America, his favorite thing to do was to go to the river and fish. And the word for fish is to pescati, but she said the word pishati, which means it means to pee. It's like, well, I mean, it's really kind of the worst way you could possibly say to pee. But she, uh, and the neighbor said, oh, no, no, that's that's not what you mean. Oh, yes, he and all of his friends, they would stand in a line on Saturday morning, the whole morning long, just stand there to pishati. Well, the whole whole morning. And she said, no, Joan, that's not what you mean. And she said, yes, I have some photos if you want to see the photos. But you know, like you just said, do stupid stuff, and you're like, wow, I wish I could... 
I wish I could have that over again. I, I did a wedding one time, and it was a guy, it was one of my, just one of my best, really best friends, and his, his wife, like her dad had died of ALS when she was in high school, and he had written a letter for her wedding day, and it was kind of funny and cute, which is good, because we would have lost the whole place, and then, so she, and I just wanted to nail that wedding, you know, so she can't, she's coming down the aisle by herself, and so Jack went to pick her up, I mean, you know, to meet her, and then they walked, her name was Rachel, and so, and the wedding went great, like everything was going great, until I got to the ring part, which is kind of, the ring part's kind of weird, it's kind of like backing up a boat in your car, like you say to her, you know, you say to her, like, you know, do I turn it this way, and the boat goes this way, so anyway, I usually just read it, and so, um, but I was reading it off the last uh, wedding that I did, and so I said, Jack, and I looked at Rachel, and I looked at Jack, and I said, Jack, say to her, Ashley. And they both went, what? And I was like, oh, my gosh. I, oh, God. I, I explained what I did. You know that I was reading off a wedding. I mean, off the previous wedding. And I went downstairs, and I cried. I, I cried my eyes out. I was so mortified that I did it. And this one pastor said, um, that he has a software thing so that he just changes the names and it changes it all through the wedding and then he just prints it out. He was Angli he's Anglican and um, so he did, the last wedding he did was a girl named Mary and the next wedding he did was a girl named Betsy so he just changed the name and it was great until he got to the Apostles' Creed and he got to the part where it said born of the Virgin Betsy and so <laughs> that wasn't so great. You know, but... Um, you know, just stuff that you say and do, and it's like, wow, I wish I could have that over with. I mean, you know, do that again. And I just think about Peter, because like in Mark chapter 14, about verse 29, Jesus said, I mean, this is right before it happened. He said, you know, you guys are going to fall away. And Peter said, I, I never will. I never will. And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And he said, if I have to die, with, die for you, I would like never... I'll never do that. And he just kind of kept saying it. And then within a matter of, I don't know, a couple of hours, he did it around a campfire. And it's like, how, wow, I bet you wish you could have that one back. I mean, like, how did that happen? And I've thought a lot about it. One thing I do think about um, about Peter is he seems to me to be a person who had kind of a sense of the dramatic moment. Like he was kind of a, you know, the kind of person that is kind of aware when the spotlight is on him and it kind of brought out a lot of, you know, kind of dramatic mm. whatever. You know, like about, well, six months before this in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus took his guys away and he said, so who do you say, who do people say that I am? Some people say this, some people say that. Who do you say? And Peter stepped forward and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, that was awesome. And that's the first time, six months before it happened, that Jesus began to tell his guys that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to be mistreated and arrested and that he was going to be killed and rise again on the third day. And Peter, it says, Peter, you know, kind of a dramatic guy, he took Jesus aside and said, you know, like the Brits say, could I have a word? And, you know, they went, you know, he took him aside and he said, that is a terrible idea. Like, you, you need to never say that again. That is a terrible idea. And uh, 
you know, Jesus said, that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Well, you got to hate that. You know, that's a bad day. But, um, you know, and then, so then that night, like the night that Peter did betray Jesus, when they were in that upper room together, and all their feet were dirty because they were having this fight about which one of them was the most awesome, and uh, they didn't wash each other's feet and all that. And Jesus had important things to tell them. There was tension in the room. He knew he wasn't going to be able to talk about it until he just kind of resolved this tension. So John says, he gets up. He he moves like into the present tense. And he says, he gets up. He takes his clothes off. He puts a towel around him. And he's pouring this water into this basin. And he starts to wash their feet. And it's super quiet. It's super awkward. Like, this, like the most awkward moment ever. And just Jesus washing their feet. Nobody's saying anything. And then he gets to Peter, like Mr. Drama. And he says, like, Lord, my feet, do you wash? And Jesus said, you don't understand what I'm doing, but you will later. And he said, you will never, I mean, in the, like the Greek language, it says, you will never wash my feet unto eternity and beyond. And I'm like, oh, please. I mean, like, and then Jesus said, if I don't have wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. Okay, then like wash me like completely all over. And it's like, you just need to stop. I mean, you're like so... Gosh, dramatic, you know. And so then they go out to this olive garden and Jesus asks them to stay awake. Peter goes to sleep. You know, it's just dark. And then all of a sudden these torches come, you know, like these soldiers with torches. And Peter wakes up and it's like lights, camera, you know, action. And he pulls out a sword. And I personally think he was going for like Judas's head. And he ducked and he hit this soldier that, you know, they had those helmets with their ears sticking out. Whacks the guy's ear off. And so Jesus, you know, it probably fell, you know how like jelly bread falls jelly side down, you know, it probably fell like bloody side down. And Jesus just picked it up, blew on it, disinfected it, put it on the guy's head and said, we're not doing that. You know, but it's like, wow, I mean, how, how dramatic can a guy be? And so then, but then, so then they went to the house of Caiaphas and, uh, and Peter was out, you know, they were where they could see Jesus being interrogated. And they were warming themselves by a fire. And then, um, and a girl just, you know, walked up to him. And she might have been a little, you know, to use the vernacular of today's American youth, a little bit, you know, hot or whatever. And, and she said, you weren't one of them, were you? And he said, it was the perfect opportunity for him to say, yes. And can I tell you what, oh, he's the most wonderful person I've ever met. And Peter said, moi? No, no, I, I don't know who you're talking about. And then another girl comes up to him and said, aren't you one of his disciples? And he could have said, yes. And can I tell you how he changed my life? And he said, no, no. I mean, you must have me like super confused with somebody else. And another guy said, I know you're one of those Galileans. I mean, they kind of thought Galileans were rednecks. He said, I heard you say, y'all don't know what you're talking about. And he said, and, and Peter began to curse and to swear and say, I, I don't even know him. I've never met him. And then the rooster crowed and he stopped. And uh, Luke said, Jesus looked at him from where he was. And you're just like, 
what happened to you? Like, did you totally change? Peter didn't change at all. What changed was the people he was with. I mean, if you're a, if you're a person, like if a person lives for the spotlight, like for applause and for approval and for likes, you know, and thumbs up on everything that you post, there's something kind of inherently unstable about that because you're around different people like all the time. There's a place where Paul said, I'm not trying to please people. I'm just trying to please God. In, in the book of Galatians, he said, if I was trying to please people, I couldn't serve Jesus. I don't even really think about that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, My, the only goal I ever think about is, um, is pleasing him. There was a guy, um, just a guy who kind of loved, his name was Nicholas Herman. He was a, he was a, a monk. Well, he wasn't really a monk. He was a, he kind of worked in a monastery in about the 1740s. Um, and, you know, he just kind of worked there. He was a, what they call it, kind of a brother of this order. And he took the name Brother Lawrence. And he was just such a, I mean, he was always so happy all the time. And people asked him, why are you so happy all the time? And he said, okay, I've got like one thing. Like, I really believe God's with me. And all I care about is pleasing him. Like, that's my whole goal in life and in my day. So if I could like preach a sermon or say my prayers or pull weeds or wash the dishes in a way that pleases him, I'm having the greatest day ever. They put it in a, his letters that he wrote explaining like why he was such a happy guy and into a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. But he said, if I could be sick and do it in a way that pleases him, you know, I would be reaching my goal. That's all I, that's all I think about, you know. And so Peter, like, we, one thing, I don't, we, you know, I don't know what he, would, what he did. Like on that Friday night, I don't know if he wanted to go to the cross and look up at Jesus and say, I am so sorry. And I love you. But he didn't do that. And then Jesus was dead. And on all day Saturday, I just, I just think about how did he spend that horrible day just thinking about, I started following him because he saw something in me that nobody had ever seen. And maybe it was that. And I started following him because I wanted to do something important in my life. And he promised me that. But now I know that's not what it was. It was him. I loved him. I loved him. Loving him was changing me. What if, I, what if I had stood up for him? What if I had been arrested? What if I had been killed? It would have been better than this. Living the rest of my life without being able to love him. This is like the first day of being condemned for something that I can never undo. This is the first day of my ruined life. And then on Sunday, you know, they were all kind of huddled up somewhere. And all of a sudden, a bunch of women came back and said, we've gone to the tomb and his body isn't there. Like he's gone. We don't know what is happening. And so John said in John chapter 20 that he and Peter ran as fast as they could to the tomb. John said, I got there first. Just saying. And, you know, and, but he didn't look in. And then Peter went in, and what he saw was 
he saw like the, 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 like the strips, the linen strips that, Nicod- that Nicodemus and Joseph had, Joseph of Arimathea had wrapped Jesus in 75 pounds of gluey spices that turned into like a cast, like if you break your leg, from here down. And then he saw the wrapping around the head with the space in between lying right there. And he didn't really know what he was looking at. Then John, then Peter left, and then John went in, and some pe- biblical scholars say that is the kind of detail that nobody would have ever made up if they were inventing the story, that John saw those grave clothes, and he understood that Jesus had passed through and that he had risen from the dead. And so, and Peter went home, and prob- it said they each went to their own house, so he was probably in his own house, pacing back and forth. I've let him down before. I've betrayed him before. I'm not going to betray him again. I'm going to find that body and bring it back. And then all of a sudden, he, he, he hears somebody calling him, Hey, Peter. And he looks out of his window. Here comes Jesus up the driveway, like risen from the dead at Peter's house. I mean, you know, it doesn't really say that, but it does say, well, like the Bible says, like the first person that Jesus appeared to risen from the dead was Mary Magdalene. And the next people were the other women that had gone to the tomb. Then Luke 24 said he appeared to two people. It wasn't necessarily the two men, but it could have been, uh, I think it was a man and his wife. And they were walking back to Emmaus, and remember how Jesus appeared to him and they didn't understand it was him and they had and he explained a lot of things about the Old Testament and himself to them. And then they realized it was Jesus and he disappeared and he ran back to where the guys were and he said, it's true, Jesus has risen and he's appeared to Peter. And you're like, wow, Jesus must have told them that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, this is the gospel that I preached to you, that you received and that I, that I have passed on to you, that Christ died for, and this is an, it was an old kind of confession that began from the very first months of the, of the p- movement of people who believed in Jesus. Paul said that I received this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, And he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. So apparently at some point between the time Jesus appeared to those women and he appeared to those two people on the road to Emmaus, he went and found Peter. Like Peter, Peter, even if he had believed Jesus was risen from the dead, he wouldn't have been able to find him because Jesus was just kind of popping up wherever he wanted to. And so Jesus came and he found him. It must have been like the most emotional, for some reason, it's not described in the New Testament. It must have been the most emotional meeting of all time. And just Peter saying, I'm so sorry. Maybe it was just none of our business that we know anything about it because he just confessed and he was so sorry and just so happy and just, you know, hugging in tears. And I think that that was a time also that Jesus explained to him why he had to die in that horrible way. And why he had to be tortured to death for us to have a new start and a new heart. And I just was wondering, could we just think about that just for a few minutes? Like, why did that have to happen? I remember when um, Mel Gibson made that movie, The Passion of the Christ. And I personally did not see it because um, I'm one of the few people I know who didn't see it. But it was because um, it was rated R for mature audiences. And I just had a lot of questions about my own maturity. Like, you know, I just didn't, I didn't think I could handle it. And, um, 
But he, Mel Gibson, it's, ma it's made in the Aramaic and Latin language, and he wasn't going to put subtitles in it because he said, this is not a story that needs words to understand it. And I'm thinking, it absolutely needs words to understand it. Everybody that was there the first time and watched it, nobody knew what they were watching. Nobody understood what was happening. There was only one person in all the world who understood what was happening that day, and he was nailed to a cross beside Jesus, and he was dead before the day was over. It has to be explained to you. Sometimes I hear people say, say, St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. St. Francis of Assisi never said that. That quote was not attributed to him until about 300 years after he was dead, and he didn't believe it because he preached the gospel with words every day. We have a message that has to be explained. One of the best places, it has to be explained with words. One of the best places to really get like your heart and your mind around why Jesus had to die in that way and what the message is, what the good news is that we have is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, to the, like the community of followers of Jesus who lived in Rome because Rome had like this gigantic community of people who believed in Jesus in the most important city in the world, this, a bunch of people who did, nobody really knows where they came from or how they got there or why so many people were, were followers of Jesus there because nobody ever started that. Like some people think it was people from Rome who had been in Jerusalem when Peter preached the message of Jesus the very first time in Acts chapter two and they believed in him and they took it back and it grew and grew and grew. But Paul said, I wanna come and visit you guys because I want you, know, you guys to help me. I want, really, I wanna go to Spain and share Jesus there. So um, I wanna spend some time with you. But before I come, I need to make sure, because a lot of times when the message of Jesus in the world grows really fast in ways that maybe doesn't have a lot of foundations, it can get a little wonky. And so Paul's like, I wanna make sure that in the simple things of our faith, we're all on the same page. I know you know this stuff, but do you mind if I explain it to you just to make sure that we all have what the message is? Because he says in verse 16, 17 of chapter one, I am not ashamed of the gospel that we have, of our message. We have good news. It's not good advice. It's not good counsel. It's not good principles for living. It's good news. Something has happened in ancient history that if you open your heart to it, it'll change your present reality and your future destiny. And he said, it's powerful. This message is so powerful. He said, it's the power of God. The word power is the Greek word dynamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. Like, so dynamite is kind of like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of innocuous compounds like nitrogen and potassium and saltpeter and salt and pepper and stuff like that. But in the right combination, under the right conditions, it's explosive. And our message is just a message of words. Love, blood, God, Jesus, cross, sin, faith, forgiveness. But in the right combination, under the right circumstances, it's explosive. It's explosive in this room right here all year long.
as kids hear that message. And so Paul says, okay, let me explain, let me explain the message to you. And he's like, before I get to like the really good part of it, the good news of it, I need to tell you some bad stuff. So he starts in chapter one, verse 18, all the way through chapter three, verse 20, saying, we are a mess. We have made a total mess of it. We've all done a million things that are wrong and we're totally polluted in every way. We can't pay for the things that we've done and we can't even fix our own heart to stop doing it. It's a disaster. I remember one, the first time I ever went into a jail, it was in the Knox County Jail on a Sunday morning with some guys and we were just going like cell to cell talking to guys about Jesus. And there was a young guy in there and I said, um, and we got talking and I said, can I ask you a question? If you were to die today and you were to go before the gates of heaven and God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And he said, well, I reckon I'd just say, I've always tried to live right and do my best. And I was like, I believe you're in the Knox County Jail. I like, <laughs> you thought, you think your best is gonna get you into heaven and has gotten you into the Knox County Jail. Hello, somebody needs to wake up, you know, it's just, I, I remember, oh gosh, one time I was head leader at Windy Gap for a weekend camp and head leader, I mean, it sounds really awesome, but um, you're really just trying to, keep kids from making out and smoking weed and just, you know, long enough so that I could hear the message of Jesus and you have to unstop toilets. And so up in the boys' dorm, like the boys up in that dorm on Friday night, they had taken a roll of toilet paper and they had crammed it down like into the toilet, like all the way in. And then they had all used it like Friday and um, Saturday morning. And so um, that was my job to unstop it. And they were in club and the speaker, Steve Chesney, he was doing what they call the sin talk, you know, where they tell them like really what's wrong with us and, and why we're so polluted and guilty. And I was up to like here in that toilet and I was just like, let them have it. I tell them about the judgment of God. I'm just like, wow, you know, but, but there's a place in chapter when he kind of gets to the end of this whole thing about how, just how, what a mess we've made and what a dis hopeless disaster we are. And he gets to a chapter in verses 9 and 19 and 20 of chapter 3. He says, the only reason that God gave the Ten Commandments was to show people you can't do these. You're not doing them. Let me just give you some. You can't do it. You know, down where we live, a lot of times you'll drive by a house and they'll have like a sign with the Ten Commandments in their front yard. And I just want to pull over and knock on the door and say, really? Like... <laughs> We're seriously rocking these in this household right here. <laughs> but I remember one day, one day, Tina and I, we were, it was our day off, and two young men came to our front door about, you know, in the morning, and um, they were trying to, they were going to try to talk us out of our religion and talk us into joining their religion. And one of the things that they uh, believe is to get to, like, to their version of heaven is you have to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. So I was, we talked for a while, and then I said, so you keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. Yes, sir. Yeah. Really, you totally do. Like you never do what theologians call sin, um, not willingly. I'm like, not willingly, what, is that? what does that mean? By accident, you do it by accident? I was like, so um, how old are you, like 19? And he said, yes, sir. And I said, so if you, um, Jesus said, like if you look at a 
like if you look at a person in, in a certain way, like in a sexual way, it's adultery. So if you ever, if you see a cute girl, you never like check her out, as they say. And he said, maybe. And I, and I said, well, Jesus said, you're an adulterer. And he started to get mad. And I said, Jesus said, that's murder. It's like, you're, it, you know, you're, commit, you're admitting to adultery and murder and it's 1015. You're not really, really having a good day, are you? You know, but, you know, but then, then there's a play. And then when, but when he gets to verse 21 of chapter three, the most beautiful words ever written, Paul says, but now. But now when we were a total and hopeless disaster, hopelessly guilty and hopelessly incapable of changing our own heart at all, a righteousness from God has been made manifest. And he said, because of Jesus, he's in verse 25, he said, the reason that Jesus died in that horrible way is that he uses a big word. He said he was a propitiation which is a word that means a satisfaction. He's satisfied in ways that I don't think that we can fully comprehend. In an incompre I think that's why it became dark for three hours in the entire world, in an incomprehensible compression of eternity into three hours. All of our guilt for everything we've ever done, do or will do, thought, think or will think, say, said, or will ever say, was put on Jesus. And he was taking what we deserved and he paid for all all of it. And because of that, Paul said, the moment he said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we're justified. That's the most beautiful word you've ever heard in your entire life. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Justified means that in the moment that you believed in Jesus, you were completely forgiven of not Every, not only of everything you've ever done, thought, or said, but everything you've ever, will ever do, think, or say in that moment, completely forgiven of everything you've ever done, do, or will do for your entire life. But it's more than that. Justification means that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to you so that when God looks at you, he sees you as righteous as Jesus himself, just as our entire guilt was given to him when he was being tortured to death in that horrible way, even though he had never done anything wrong. When we trusted in him, his righteousness is given to us, even though we've never done anything 100% right. That is the most awesome thing in all of the entire world. You know, it means that we have been freed not only of all of our guilt, but also of all of our shame. There's a, there's a woman that a couple of years ago, I was going through kind of a tough time, and she helped me a lot. And her name is, uh, she's a, a sociologist at the University of Houston. Her name is Brene Brown. And uh, she, had, she had done, at that point, about 11 years of research on the concept of shame. And she said, shame is, like, guilt is the idea that I've done something wrong. Shame is the idea that I'm a bad person. She calls it scarcity. It's just that feeling that I'm never good enough. 
I grew up like that, you know? I'm never good enough. It'll never be enough. My grades are never good enough. I'm never smart enough. I'll never be rich enough. I'll never be good-looking enough. I'll never be anything enough. I'm a person who, she said, some people just have it. They have a feeling that I am unworthy of love and belonging. And that's what she calls shame. Once, so she did a TED talk about that and a guy told her, you need to be prepared for 5,000 people watching this. And it kind of freaked her out. In the end, 11 million people watched it because she, she hit a thing. One sociologist said, shame is the master emotion in modern American society, that it's never enough. And one thing that I have learned is that justification not only means that I am freed of all of my guilt, but it also means I'm freed of all of my shame. And if I grew up feeling like, you know, I'm unacceptable, well, justification means Jesus accepts me because I'm righteous in his sight. So if nobody else accepts me, he accepts me. That makes me acceptable. I am acceptable. If shame means I'm unwantable, well, maybe nobody else wanted me, but the reason he did that was because he wanted me. It was because he wanted you and me. If nobody else loves me, and I feel my whole life, life like I'm unlovable, the reason that he did it is because he loved me. He loves you. He loves you and me. And so I am, by definition, acceptable, wantable, and lovable because at least he loves me. You know, when I became a Christian, I used to hear people say that justification means when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. I don't believe that anymore. I, I used to think about that and it made me feel like I am so bad that God can't even look at me. It's like when I got to heaven, I could just hear God say, oh, brother, I forgot this one. Oh, man. Okay, I tell you what. Um, I'm gonna look over here at Jesus here for you know about 30 seconds. Go, go, just go on in. You know, it seemed like, it seemed like the eternal consecration of shame to me. But justification means that when God looks at me, he looks at me. He looks at you because he wanted me and you. And we're righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. But it's you and me because we were the ones he wanted. We were the ones he loved. And Peter, like, I'm going to be condemned to live the rest of my time without the ability to love him. He's been loving Jesus for two thousand years. You know, I have a friend, kind of the guy that first started telling me about young life, like 20, like, no, this was, oh man, 27 years ago. Um, we were still in Italy at the time, but I made friends with this guy named Buddy Odom, and um, he would always tell me about young life, and, but one time he wrote one of those Christmas letters when his kids were little, you know, the, the kind, people don't really do that so much anymore because they kind of do it on Facebook like every day, but they, you know where they talk about how awesome their kids are, but they, um, but he said, so this, you know, his Christmas letter, he said, hey, let me tell you about Bo. He said, Bo's in the fifth grade. Bo is so awesome. He's playing football. He's 
strong and big like me, you know, and he's on the drama team. He really, really loves that. Bo, I love watching him grow up. Of all my kids, Bo's my favorite. And I thought, dang, buddy. <laughs> you know, he said, let me tell you about Will. He said, Will's in the third grade. Will, of all my kids, he's the most like me. He's funny. He loves to be funny. He loves to make us laugh. He looks most like me. Of all my kids, Will's my favorite. Hey, let me tell you about Katie. Katie's in kindergarten, and she's struggling to read a little bit, but she's doing great. She's just like her mom. She loves to be with her mom and do the stuff that her mom does. Of all my kids, Katie's my favorite. Justification means, of all his kids, you're his favorite. You know, I had a, one time, I was the adult, I had, I was the adult guest host at uh, Sharp Top for a, a week, like for a summer thing, which that's really kind of a lame job. You know, you're just like, hey, um, here's the coffee, here's the bananas, young life is awesome, call me if you need me. You know, there's not much to it. But there was a guy there, it was a cop, and a retired cop from New Jersey and, uh, named Jeff and his wife, and they lived in Florida. And their daughter was like, a, a, like an intern, like she was a year-long intern. And um, so they were guests up there, and I said, hey, Jeff, so what are y'all doing here? He said, well, my daughter wanted me to learn how young life, you know, reaches kids with the love of Christ, so we're here. You know, so I said, great, you know. But then after the sin talk, I think it was Shelly Sadler that week, and um, after the sin talk, he was crying. And I said, I mean, he was a, like a 380, like he was this huge guy. And I said, Jeff, are you okay? And he said, I've never heard this before. I said, wait till tomorrow, baby. It's going to rock your face off. Like, so when, when she did the crosstalk, you know, and sent everybody out for the 20 minutes, you could hear this cop crying over the whole camp. And then we went down to the, like, the sipping parlor down there where they do chips and salsa afterwards. And I went up to him and I said, Jeff, you okay? And he said, my daughter wanted me to learn how young life reaches kids with the love of Christ but I think I found the love of Christ. I don't normally hug men, but come here. <laughs> anyway, thank you all. <laughs>